Live from Salt Lake City, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. And I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Thank you for joining us tonight. We have part two with Reverend Brian Diggs. And uh, that was to emphasize Brian Diggs. And uh, it was so fun last week, and he has a lot of information and insights that are really unique. Uh, before we get into it, um, um, we're going to wrap December up with a Heart of the Matter four-part series. I'm going to call it Five Approaches, Four Fails. Five Approaches, Four F Fails. It'll be over a four-week period. It's going to start next week. And we're going to kind of give a thumbnail sketch of the five approaches and how four of them, in my opinion, I think uh, are fails starting next week. So just wanted to tell you that. Listen, uh, we're in week two. Welcome, Brother Thank Brian you. again. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, wait a minute. The fist. <laughs> Thank sorry, you, the fist. Sorry. The guy's a, a semi-pro wrestler. I'm just kidding. Um, and he's a very unique man. He has some unique, he has some distinct views that aren't necessarily uh, shared by a lot of people because it's kind of an admixture of what he is. And so what I want to do is I want to kind of try to sort of summarize what Brian presented to us last week in terms of his overall views. And then after having him clarify or correct things that I might say, we'll move forward and uh, we're going to try to talk about some timeline issues. And we may use the board, we may not, topical timeline issues about his views. So let me summarize. Welcome back, uh, Reverend Brian. Uh, to refresh those of you at home, Brian has an MDiv from Duke uh, and has pastored the First Methodist Church in downtown Salt Lake for 10 years before stepping out and overseeing UMCOR, uh, which is an outreach ministry of the Methodist Church to help natural people during natural disasters. Is that national? You're over that? National? It is. Well, the organization's worldwide, but yeah, what I do is just U.S.-based. Uh, U.S.-based. Wow. Yeah. So if they have a natural disaster in Florida, you're doing that? Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, but in talking with Brian last week, we discovered uh, more than just that street cred as he presented us with some really interesting, um, in my opinion, and he can correct me if I'm wrong, admixture of a, a personal love, respect for orthodoxy, um, a general disdain for all things Protestant, um, which he sort of places me into, not personally doesn't disdain me, but maybe the, my approach, and kind of personal uncertainty where his own religious allegiances kind of lie, meaning where he maintains that orthodoxy in some form, Russian or Greek or Catholicism or Lutheranism or Methodism is the way to do Christianity. He seems to think, he seems to, and correct me, Brian, he seems to have said, you know, Greek or Russian orthodoxy is the best way. I just won't do it because I personally find myself not ready to commit to that life. Well, I mean, you know, I would say that I don't want to totally bash. But I am a Protestant. Yeah. I mean, you and I are very similar in that way, right? Yeah. It's just a big catch-all umbrella. Okay. So kind of my project is to help Protestants uh, explore the more historic faith because I believe that more historic faith is a better Christian example. Okay. So it's not that I, I mean, I, I, mean, I wouldn't be Protestant if I didn't think we were had something left to give to the world. Okay. And I think Protestants have a lot to give to the world. In fact, one of the things I think I messed up on last week is I didn't give enough uh, credence to, I mean, I felt like when I watched the show over 
that people would say, does he not believe you can have a personal relationship with Jesus? That's a great, because I kind of walked and, away uh, thinking, yeah, wondering. Yeah, and I would say no. I mean, that's probably my fault. I do believe oh. that it's important for Protestants and Catholics and Orthodox to have this personal rela that relationship with Jesus. But the, the difference would be is that I don't believe that you can have a truthful personal relationship with Jesus outside of the traditional church. So there's an amalgamation in your estimation of uh, salvation by grace through faith, which then is played out through liturgy. You're kind of saying that, that if you have this relationship with Jesus of being regenerated or whatever, it's gotta be matched with Orthodox approach. Is that what you're saying? And Orthodox, yeah. I don't, and Orthodox I don't mean approach. Eastern Orthodoxy. I guess what I mean, although I love the Orthodox church, what I mean is a more orthodox approach I to see. the faith. Okay. So here's an example of that. I mean, if I said, um, you know, Sean, do you believe in the Trinity? I don't know if you do or don't, right. but just to say, let's just say you do. Mm -hmm. um, I would say the difference between a Protestant's belief in the Trinity, or at least a kind of a more non-liturgical Protestant, mm -hmm. would be that they would have no problem divorcing belief in the Trinity from the Eucharist okay. or from baptism. So those are all kinds of peripheral rituals and practices okay. that they engage in. But in traditional Christianity, which I would place Methodism firmly within, the, you can't divorce the doctrine of the Trinity from the practice of the table. Okay. Or from, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So uh, just since we're on this at this part of the introduction, if I said to you, uh, Brian, listen, I'm a Trinitarian. Uh, I do believe that... Um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are played out through the liturgical things that we do, including a weekly communion, including uh, certain prayers said or whatever, whatever things that brought us more into a liturgical approach. Would you respect that form of Protestantism more than, hey, come to our church and go to the concert and uh, hear the pastor tell about his recent ski vacation? I sure would. Okay. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> okay, I thought so. Yeah, I mean, I just... I, I, I'm very suspect of a lot of um, so-called evangelical fundamentalist Protestant churches. Okay. And the reason I'm suspect uh, of them is because they're generally a cult of the preacher mentality. Yeah. So it's not about church as much as it is about, do I like what he's going to tell me this mm. Sunday? Okay. Um, and I think that puts a lot of Protestants in a great bind, a lot of Protestant pastors, even in my own faith tradition, mm -hmm. because they're having to compete with whatever big mega church that, you know, here's what I always say. If, if that church could also be the name of a theme park, like the whatever, the way, the adventure, the, I mean, I just feel like it's probably not the best church. Yeah. Although there could be some great churches that are called that. I just, yeah. I'm just saying in general, um, you have kind of what you became frustrated with. It's exactly what I get frustrated with, mm -hmm. namely a kind of entertainment mentality. Mm -hmm. um, or as I said last week, making Jesus relevant as opposed, as opposed to speaking the truth and making us, the congregation, relevant to Jesus. Yeah. And I, you know, you and I are on the same page, man. Uh, and I'm not t tooting our horn, but our deal here is to, uh, we don't have uh, the historical leanings. In fact, I re reject them sort of, but um, we do have the need to understand what scripture says about our king and let, we're gonna teach it come hell or high water. We're not here to please people. We aren't here to do anything but we do. If we have two people in the audience or if we draw 10, we're not gonna bring in stuff to keep them coming and happy and filling the seats. 
We're not going to take their, their money. We're, we're not going to do any of that stuff. We are going to try. So I get your frustration greatly. Mm -hmm. I really relate to it because that's what I was just talking to your wife, how we were doing the full thing against Mormonism until we saw what the local churches were pretty much doing uh, unitedly. And it just disgusted me. I mean, the Mormons yeah. need to know the, the scripture. You might believe they need to know the scripture and they also need to know the traditions and the, and the liturgy. But I think they need to at least know the scripture. And if they're not getting that at the church in a really good, well-informed way, then to me, it's, it's a theme park. Yeah, but I would, you know, like, um, I'm not sure if I mentioned this last time, but I co-authored the paper for the United Methodist Church on Mormonism. Yeah, you mentioned it to me, night. but I don't think you okay. did and so I think that um, it's tricky because, again, on some level, I respect Mormons a lot more than I do a lot of Christians mm -hmm. because, again, they believe the church exists for the salvation of the world, mm -hmm. whereas most of the churches you became frustrated with are the same ones that I be, I'm frustrated with, and they're liberal and conservative. They're liturgical and non-liturgical, mm -hmm. uh, but mostly non-liturgical. Mm -hmm. They tend to uh, try to entertain people, yeah. and because they're they're delivering a product, mm -hmm. you know, and that's what really begins to uh, frustrate me. For example, when um, a lot of my colleagues, uh, and I've done it too, have preached sermon series. Yeah, you've probably done that yourself, no. right? Okay, no. well, um, sermon series kind of bug me because uh, even sermon titles bother me mm. because and so I don't do it anymore. And the reason they bother me is because, again, it creates in the minds of the congregation members that you're delivering a product to them. Here's a nugget of truth you can take home. Or I'm going to, you know, here's a five-week uh, sermon series on love. Mm -hmm. and, um, but I think what ends up happening in those kinds of things, it's just too easy to extract a concept from the narrative of Jesus. Mm -hmm. So more traditional churches, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the lectionary readings, how that mm -hmm. works. Heard of it. But, but uh, Orthodox, Catholics, Lutherans, Methodists, they all have what we call the lectionary. Uh, Methodists don't have to use it, but they're uh, prescribed readings for that particular Sunday. Oh yeah, that's right. And it's three-year cycle. So every, after every three years you start over, you'll hear the same reading on the same Sunday. Mm -hmm. But the idea is it tells the chronological story of Jesus mm -hmm. Uh, because, the, uh, because, again, throughout most of Christian history, most Christians haven't had Bibles, nor have they been able to read. And so the lectionary is developed as a way to tell that story. Mm -hmm. So one of the ways I describe this is if I had a jigsaw puzzle, a 52-week jigsaw puzzle, of uh, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and I picked up a piece of that, preached on it, and chunked it back in the box, mm -hmm. the puzzle would never be put together, and you'd never see the whole picture. And that's where I think some of our Protestant preaching goes awry because preachers preach on what the scriptures they like and sure. the topics they like, sure. and they're not forced to preach on yeah. the Jesus that they don't like. Right. You know? Does, do the lectionaries, if they're recycled every three years, for instance, it took us two years to get through Revelation. So there's got to be things missing from the lectionary as well. Actually, I would suggest to you that more traditional churches, um, after that three-year cycle, the church has heard 75% of the Bible. So over a three-year cycle, they're going to hear. That's why, you know, there's a Baptist preacher. The old joke goes, he went to an Episcopal church one Sunday, and he came back and said, my God, there's more Bible one week than there is a month of Sundays in a Baptist church. Wow. Because in a traditional church, you actually have four scripture readings every Sunday morning. Hmm. Not to mention the fact that the liturgy itself is mostly scripture. Hmm. So you hear that story. Hmm. Um, for example, even in the Eucharistic prayers, 
uh, which is the prayer that the priest or the pastor would say over the bread and the wine. It's a, it, it's a recount of the entire biblical story beginning in Genesis and ending in Revelation. Mm. And it places the church right in the middle of that mm. so that the church can remember the acts of the past and they look forward to the, to the future, to the eschaton. Um, and so you're bringing the entire past, the entire future, future to the table and celebrating that in the bread and wine. But it is a much more biblical expression. I think the, the, the liturgical church is a much more biblical expression of Christianity than the non-liturgical church. I would um, uh, argue that with what we do here, but I would agree. I don't know what you do here. Yeah, so. yeah. But uh, no, but that's okay. Uh, let me continue to uh, cover some things. Um, so last week I did get from you that you were kind of said, and I'm, you may have misunderstood me, that Christianity is this thing that is done best in this way, but outside of that, you don't judge someone's salvation. So even if they are participating in Mormonism or whatever, uh, you aren't saying because they don't participate in the way it should be done, they are going to hell, or do you? Correct, I do not. You do yeah, not. I do not. But the difference is this. <clears throat> I don't really hang uh, eternal salvation or damnation upon uh, anything other than God's grace. Okay. So that um, a part of the reason that I would want, like I, I, being a Southerner, you know, I told you I was kind of, the joke is I was raised Southern Baptist. I just didn't go to a Baptist church. Yeah. Um, but I would still have theological debates with all my Baptist friends. And um, I mean, their thing was, they just wanted me to go to heaven, right? Mm. My thing was not as much, am I gonna go to heaven or hell, but what is truthful or, or untruthful? Because um, I think in the end, it's what you, you can't have a proper relationship with Jesus unless you have a proper understanding of who he is. Here's an example. So um, uh, my wife and I have an eight-year-old son uh, if he were three, if he were three, and we in uh, three or four or five, and he was you know in preschool, or even kindergarten, and it were it was October twenty seventh, and he had spent his entire preschool in the month of October, and, uh, and I took him to church on Sunday mornings, and he walks into church, and there's a woman sitting in the corner, and she's pro she's pretty old, and she's got black and gray clothes on, long stringy hair, got a sharp nose with a wart on the end of it, and the janitor just happened to leave the broom in the corner where she was sitting. What's my son going to think? Right. He's going to think, Mom, Pop, that's a witch. Because yeah. that's all he's seen in school, right? You know? right? But if I say, hey, come here. Let me... That woman's name is whatever her name is. And she's been a member of this church for 57 years. She's taught all, you know, all the adults went through her Sunday school class. and she's the... So I describe her in a different way. If you go over there, she'll give you a hug, kiss, and piece of candy. Mm -hmm. And uh, so my description of the woman in the corner then changes my son's relationship to the woman in the corner. Sure. And I think that's what we're missing. So, so, for example, if a Roman Catholic or an Orthodox wants to convert a Protestant, it's not because they believe they're bad people or don't love or don't want to love Jesus as much or anything like that. It's that they're trying to bring them into what they consider to be the fullness of the faith so they can have an even better relationship with Jesus. Which is what most religions will say. I mean, yeah. in the Christian realm, most will say, you know, that's what the Mormons say, actually. You know, we don't want to take away the good that you have. Come to us and let us give you more, you know. Um, but yeah. th that being said, Brian, I have to ask you, because after the show last week, I had some conversations with people who watched it, and they said, it's too much what you were kind of describing. I mean, 
I mean, what it, what it is required, if you compare what Protestants think, that, listen, I am saved by grace through faith. I trust in his salvific work for me, and it's done. He has done it. I just walk in faith now and try to love through his spirit. But you have added in, it seemed, a lot of stuff that's necessary to keep a person growing in their morality and in their ethics. So how do you defend that? How, that the, the, he says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. But it seems like within orthodoxy, there is just a, a whole hunk of stuff that makes it more tough, even down to not having pews. Yeah. You gotta kneel on the carpet for three hours. Tell us about that. How do I defend it? How uh, do you, well, how can you share with a Protestant audience primarily what the value is? Is it just, is it the chiropractic of religion? Yeah, yeah. You go in and feel more by doing more. And so it, you walk out feeling like you've done more for God that way. Is it that? What is it? Well, I, I mean, I would defend it like, as my favorite theologian used to always say, like porcupine screw very carefully. <laughs> Although he didn't use screw. Uh, um, so I would not say that more traditional versions of Christianity, Orthodoxy, Catholicism, Lutheranism, Methodism, Episcopal, um, they believe in salvation by grace through faith alone. I mean, you know, it's, so that's not really the issue. What's the, why uh, the ritual then? Why um, the liturgy? Well, they would say, and I would agree with them, that that's what the Christians who knew Jesus believed Jesus wanted them to do. So in other words, it's no mistake. Here, here's a great example. Um, I'm sure you, the lenses by which you read Scripture are probably markedly different than mine, mm -hmm. right? Because the question I always ask people is, what came first, the church? The Bible was the church. And so I believe that the, the Scriptures are, ref, are a theological reflection as opposed to an historical account oh, okay. of who they believed was in their midst on Sunday morning. So you might be familiar with the walk to Emmaus story. Yeah. So a couple of guys that walk from, from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and they're walking along, and then this stranger appears beside them. They, they don't know who it is, but it's Jesus. Um, and so Jesus begins to explain the scriptures to them on that road. They still can't see who he is, right? Mm -hmm. They get to Emmaus. The sun's going down. They invite the stranger into their home. Uh, and then the stranger does what? He goes behind the, exactly from the Bible. He goes behind the table, takes bread, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it to them. Mm. And then phew, the Bible says their eyes were open in the breaking of the bread. Mm. Now we can take that as an historical story mm -hmm. if you want to, but I don't believe the early church thought of it that way. Mm. In fact, I believe the early church thought of that story as one of the theologies of the Eucharist or Holy Communion in the early church, mm. namely, that we gathered together, Jesus was in our midst, the scriptures were open just as they were on the road to Emmaus, mm -hmm. and that Jesus was at the table with us, and that when we break bread together and share that cup, our eyes are opened to the very resurrected presence of Jesus. Beautiful tradition, you know, we can't, can't dispute yeah. it, I love that. Okay. Oh, I, and yeah. so, so to me, the, the question is that, and maybe I'm changing the angle here, but the question of, you know, is the walk to Emmaus an historical story? Um, in my estimation, probably not but I don't believe the author thought it was either. Mm. Um, something like that could have happened, but the idea is behind that is the Eucharist to me. So is that kind of a standard view within? No. No, you're, you're a little bit more radical. Uh, I would say it would be a standard view, most likely within the Orthodox Catholic tradition. Okay. But again, United Methodists are very Protestant, so we come to the scriptures um, in a couple of ways. We come to them if we're conservative Protestants, like fundamentalist, mm. or for liberal Protestants, uh, almost like 
if we could just know, like most smarter Protestants um, adhere to, and you probably studied this, and it was probably not a good thing in your seminary or in your schooling, um, the historical critical method. Yeah. So if we could just understand what the, oh, you know, the culture of the author and yeah. where he was coming from, then we could really understand what the Bible really means. Whereas the way I was taught at a Protestant seminary, by the way, was uh, I had a theologian who once said, isn't it incredible that we know more about the book of Romans than Paul ever could have known. Mm, funny. What he's saying there is that once the church placed Romans in between Genesis and Revelation, mm. Romans then took on its full meaning. Mm. Because again, the seminary I went to believed in church. Right. So, but you see this all the time. Like, you know, one of the things that I used to, I used to uh, despise the Old Testament. Mm. And I just thought, one, it's way too long. Still believe it is. But it is the Old Testament, right? Yeah. And I even have the Protestant Old Testament, which is smaller mm. than the Orthodox or Catholic one. Mm. Um, but then I got to reading about how the early church fathers understood biblical typology, mm. um, which would be, um, which really means the Old Testament stories prefigure Jesus, the Jesus story. Yeah, and that's how I read it. It's yeah, I, I think that's the most appropriate way. Yeah. So if you look at um, uh, if you look at our, uh, some of the great liturgies of the church, mm -hmm. or even just the theological books that have been written, you'll see uh, Moses was a type of Christ. Yeah. So just as Moses led the people out of slavery into the promised land, mm -hmm. so did Jesus. In fact, what happened at Christmas, we're uh, about to mm -hmm. go into the Advent Christmas season, Jesus leaves the promised land, goes to where? On the back of a donkey, to Egypt, mm -hmm. and then comes back, right. leading them out of now spiritual slavery yeah. and sin and death. Great types. I think there's so many types with all of them. Joseph, David. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the best ones is Mary. Have you ever heard that you know, uh, Mary's womb is the Ark of the New Covenant? That's a very traditional Orthodox Catholic understanding. Don't know it. No. So just as the, uh, the Ark of the, in the Old Covenant contained God, her womb contains, she's the Ark of the New Covenant because uh -huh. her womb contains God, hmm. God's very self. Wow. So. Uh, speaking of Mary, uh, what they call Mariology when it comes to Catholicism, is that part of your thought too? It's, Do you pray? Uh, I have. Yeah. I have. Why I does to, that not surprise me? Um, was that just to cover all bases, or were you really sincerely doing that? Oh, no, I used to pray the rosary. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, but again, you have to remember, when see, I think Protestants, even Roman Catholics themselves, often, and even Orthodoxy, um, they'll oftentimes have a misconception of their own faith. Yeah. So just like I could ask you to pray for me, I could ask those who have passed on into glory who are theoretically closer to God. Mm -hmm to pray for me. Yeah. And that's what you're saying in the rosary. Pray for us now, Mary, and at the time of our death. So when you say, I have, why don't you now? Uh, mostly laziness. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> mostly laziness. Answer. Yeah. Um, so let me just ask you a couple things and we'll just move the show along sure. because uh, I, I think we're good with all that. Uh, a couple questions. The succession. I'm, mm -hmm. not, I'm not asking these questions at all to debate. It doesn't matter to me the way I see things, how people really right. view things. I mean, I, our thing is all subjective faith, not objective, which is that what's what kind of started this going, that someone mm -hmm. come on and explain the objective faith right. that they su support, where I say it's a subjective, because in the end, everybody in a church is subjectively deciding what they believe and don't anyway, including yourself. You know, we, we kind of listen to it and we take the pieces we like, and very few people, in my estimation, go attend a church and embrace every single thing that is taught. You know, very Rebecca few. I, I'm dying to ask you a question, Go Sean. ahead. 
Why in the world, as a Christian anarchist, right? Yeah. Why do you feel the need to get to gather people together to tell them they can believe whatever they want to believe? Well, it's because when they have that freedom to hear what's, I teach the best of my ability using everything I can at my, in my hands and I make mistakes and I admit that, but when they can hear the ideas from me and then they can afterward maybe throw some of their own out and they can walk out of here and say, I'm going to check that out, what I think. Or, that leaves it in their hands to do the research, to find out. And in that freedom, I think that people are more prone to discover God than if they just are handed a package where they, where they accept 80 or 90% of it and discard 10. I, want, I think it's really important for people to find out who he is on their own. And I am not the expert, and I don't think there's anybody on this earth who is. I don't think anybody is offering up the perfect plan. So it's got to be subjectively, I mean, we do our best, people decide what they want, and that's why we meet together. And we do our best to share the truths that we know, and then everyone decides, they walk out. And they do that anyway, Brian. That's my point. We do it anyway. Not a bad point. Thanks. That's not a bad point. Yeah. I, 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 on many levels, I, I really respect that kind of honesty mm. and genuineness from you because mm. you're not trying to create no. or present. And I am, by the way. Right. You're not trying to present something that is kind of made up, right? No. I'm just saying mine's not made up. Right. I mean, it, you know, that, that's the difference. I think that um, uh, it's like, you know, so I would, I would tend to, um, if I were to pastor another church, I would be, I, I, I would never be interested in, in delivering my personal beliefs on something, even though I might differ from the church. And I do on a lot of levels, mm. mostly social issues, because I'm, I'm a total liberal. Mm. Um, so, you know, if, if I'm speaking of Orthodoxy or Catholicism or even United Methodism, which I'm, I'm, that's where I am, mm -hmm. um, I would disagree with a lot of things. Mm -hmm. But I would either quit or say what the church believes because on some level uh, I, uh, I believe the church is just bigger than me mm. and it has this tradition um, and I just think it's like I mean for one of the examples would be uh, so my denomination is in the midst of a most likely will split in the next five or six years mm. and it will split over the homosexual issue mm -hmm. Uh, but that's not really the issue. That's just the issue that's going to make it split. I mean, there are lots bigger issues out there, right? So uh, I'll end up on the liberal side of that, <clears throat> even though, but only because they're nicer people. Um, because there's a lot about the conservative side I like. At least they're trying mm -hmm. to believe that Jesus is more than just a nice guy, mm -hmm. that there really is something. Mm -hmm. There really is something to the faith. I don't know if that makes sense or it not. Does, but, yeah. Um, so I, I totally respect where you're coming from because I believe it's a, it's, it's a, it comes from a place of extreme honesty. We try for that. Yeah. So can I bring up something uh, in your own personal life mm -hmm. in terms of homosexuality? Yeah. So you have someone in your family who's a homosexual. And last week after the show, we talked about how um, the orthodox view of homosexuality as taught by the early church fathers, the, the patristic fathers, the scripture on down has been anathema, right? So you side with, you'll side with what it says there in, in terms of that time and that day and what the mm -hmm. fathers have said about it. But you and your heart in your own life say. I would say this. 
I don't want to get you in trouble. I just want to. Oh, no, I won't get in trouble okay. as a Methodist. Okay. I mean, my bishop is a lesbian woman who's okay. married. Okay. So, and she's great. So I mean, what do you, how do you teach it then? If the father said this, the scripture says this, that's what you stand with. But then when you get up to the pulpit, what do you say? Yeah. That issue is now such a fluid issue within United Methodism because of the imminent split that I would say what I really believe, namely that I have no issue with homosexuality. In fact, my 22 year old son is gay. Yeah. I knew from the time he was two yeah. that he had these very feminine qualities and I, you know, all, all this stuff. Sure. Um, he just converted to Roman Catholicism. Oh. And if you were to ask him, Tim, why'd you convert? You're a gay man. Mm. He would say, because at least I can have an argument here. He doesn't like the whole pat on the back. Mm -hmm. You just believe what you want to believe and just go find the place that fits, quote, your needs. Right, right. Because he's convinced that how in the world will he ever know what he needs? Mm -hmm. Who told him he would know what he needs? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I really respect him for that. I mean, I, I think it's pretty incredible. Um, so, and I'm not, I am not uh, challenging your integrity, but I just, I just. You wonder, can challenge it. It should be many times. I just wonder me. how you uh, are able to side with what the church says as, Orthodox, but then when it comes to your personal opinion, you'll say, "Yeah, I don't." Because no I could deal. be wrong about that issue, right? I mean, yeah. I, yeah, I get that. I don't want to say I'm totally right either. Yeah, but I think it's an it's, it's a struggle. Whenever the church has reformed, it's always reformed within the boundaries of the church. Mm -hmm. So, whereas I'm not allowed to do gay marriages mm -hmm. yet as a United Methodist pastor, mm -hmm. I would not do a gay marriage until the church says I can, or I just quit and become something else. Cause I, I don't want to, I took a vow to this stuff. Hmm. And so, I'd, and I would not want to uh, break those vows. I see. So, so you did take a vow that said, I will not, I won't adhere to whatever's I written. took a vow to uphold the liturgy, polity and doctrine of the United Methodist church, wow. okay. which is very interesting because most Methodists don't adhere to the liturgy. <laughs> it's the, a subjectivism I'm talking yeah. about. Oh, I know. That, yeah. That's my issue with, I mean, that's my struggle with my own denomination is that I'd like to have, be able to have a common set of practices to allow our clergy to have a common conversation, which so, is hard to do. Let me get to some, some kind of brass tacks between you and I as brothers that I, that this trouble me to no end. And you seem like you have the skill to articulate some responses. Brian. We have a world that is so, and has been so torn up, divided, split up mm -hmm. by religious views. Was that, I mean, it seems like that God intended that. If he didn't, then, then, there's, then there's a big problem. I mean, so, I mean, how could he give us this savior to redeem and save the world and yet on every street corner, we have 10 people fighting over what it means and what has to be done and what has to be believed in order to please God. What, I mean, how do you answer that question of Catholicism, Orthodoxy, Anglican, Protestantism in their 30,000 denoms, the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists, every one of them, if you sit with the most devout they love God. They want God. They're seeking Jesus. They're trying to live lives that are pleasing him if they're devout. Why? Why do we care? 
Can you give me some thought on that? Well, I think you're right. I think it's sad. <clears throat> like, for example, uh, Protestants oftentimes have what they call Reformation Sunday, uh. which is, and you see this in traditional Protestant denominations, it's where like, it's supposed to be a celebration of the Reformation. Mm-hmm. Um, I always thought of that more um, when I did those services. I would always try to think of, think of them more in a kind of funereal sense. Yeah. Uh, because it doesn't name something that's great. It names a division within the church, oh. right? <clears throat> so I think we need to uh, repent of that sin. Mm. And so uh, most of the major Protestant denominations, as well as Catholics and Orthodox, are constantly in ecumenical dialogues mm. to try to come together. An example of that would be uh, the Methodists and the Episcopalians. I just found out, actually my wife told me this, um, that that now I can I can serve as uh, as the pastor slash priest in an Episcopal church, so they're interchangeable at this point. Mm-hmm. And then you also see different Protestant churches coming together and have federated churches. You have a Methodist, Presbyterian, Lutheran, because there's just that not not as many people in the community, so all the Protestants just come together yeah. as a catch-all. But to answer your question about the division, um, I would just name that as a part of the brokenness of a, a sinful world, in the same way that. Um, uh, well, an example of this would be, here's what I feel like you're trying to do. You're trying to, because it's not, quote, working, we should just discount it, right? No, it's not, I'm not discounting because it's not working, but it's not working tells me the discounting I'm making is more legitimate than okay. not. I would say it is working, but let's just say you're right, okay? People say to me, Brian, how in the world can you be a Christian? Look at or how could you even be real? I have lots of non-religious friends. Mm-hmm. How could you even be religious? I mean, look at the number of people you guys have killed mm-hmm. in the name of religion. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, my, my response to them is, we haven't killed half as many people as nations have killed. Yeah. And yet you still believe in the, in the importance of a nation state, even though it's dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. So how many Americans in this country, whether they're conservative or, 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 or liberal, Republican or Democrat, are going to say, let's just scratch the whole thing because the country's so polarized. Mm-hmm. Both of these polarized groups believe in the organization. You know? I mean, people say, I don't believe in organized religion. Well, there's no such thing as an unorganized religion. That's the whole nature of religion, right? So I would say that we lament the brokenness of the church. Mm-hmm. I always want Orthodox and Catholics to be as Orthodox and Catholic as they can be because that's what's going to help Protestants become more clearly defined. Hmm. I don't know if that makes sense or not. What do you mean by that? That will help make Protestants be more clearly defined in their protestation against? No, just the opposite. Oh. Sorry, I should have been more clear. It'll, it'll help Protestants be more faithful to the tradition. Because generally, um, like, uh, generally, if the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church are much more clearly defined and don't water it down. Like one of the things that made me saddest back in the early 90s is when I saw Roman Catholics and fundamentalists marching together in abortion, anti-abortion parades. Mm -hmm. Because I thought to myself, damn it, Mm -hmm. now they're going to consider themselves the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I don't want those Catholics saying, oh, we're all brothers. Mm -hmm. I want them trying to convert the fundamentalist. Mm -hmm to a fuller understanding of the faith. Sure. Does that make sense? Sure. So the stronger they are, the more we can begin to, to think about, at least, uh, claiming a more traditional faith. So you're really committed in your heart to the traditional faith, to orthodoxy. You're really committed to that having the greatest value of, of everything 
above all. The only problem I have with it is that everybody thinks their views are the more th most orthodox. Absolutely. It, yeah. I mean, even though you, every, people call themselves orthodox, everyone thinks their views are in harmony with what God wants, which would be the consummate orthodoxy, right? But the difference is this. If I went and picked up a book on uh, rocket science, of which I know nothing about, yeah. and read the book and said, man, I'm a rocket scientist now. I just haven't gone to school. I don't hang out with other rocket scientists, mm -hmm. but I know just as much as they do. Mm -hmm. And if I could get enough people around me that also read that book mm -hmm. and said, well, we're rocket scientists too. Would that make us rocket scientists? Mm -hmm. right. That's what I think fundamentalist Protestants have done. Mm -hmm. When they claim solo scriptura, mm -hmm. they're also making the claim that the tradition that gave them the scripture is not relevant. Right. I, not only would I say it's irrelevant, I would say, it's imperative. It's it is the intrinsic. lens yeah. by which we understand Scripture. Yeah. That so is the difference. Do you have a greater respect then for like Orthodox Presbyterianism, who regales the early church fathers and all that as being more important than a lot of... I don't know much about Orthodox oh, okay. but I never Just even heard of them until I got here, but if that's true, at least they're trying. Yeah, you know? I, but I know still one Calvinist. pastor who preaches the, the fathers, the fathers. And, and Okay, so let me take this another direction. From the apostles, the belief is there's apostolic succession, even out to today? Yes. Okay. So my question is, part of the, what made apostles apostles was the fact that they witnessed the resurrected Lord. They gave their life for it. At least that's what we have in the record. Mm -hmm. They were taught by him. And even Paul fits these, these, uh, these um, categories. How, because an apostle, according to what orthodoxy says, who passed their authority upon bishops and, and other pastors and clergymen, and we call them apostles, they, that they're carrying this forward, but they don't meet the qualifications of the New Testament apostles. They, they aren't witnessing Christ's resurrection and giving their life for it. And that is what every one of the apostles did, except John, he gave his life for it. He just didn't, wasn't martyred apparently. So how do, how, that's the first thing I want to know. Mm -hmm. they, the claim of apostolic succession and an authority from the apostles. There's a friend, Dave Bartosowitz. The guy is constantly, we got apostolic authority all the way back to Peter. We are the true church. We have the truth. You need to be orthodox. But I always wonder, how do you make that leap? That leap. Tell me the leap. Explain the leap. Yeah, well, I think Dave's right. I mean, I, I know him from Facebook. Yeah. Um, and I, and I kind of watched his conversion. Yeah. Apparently, he was kind of a fundamentalist or evangelical Christian, I think is probably what he was. He was Catholic, he was Mormon, and then he okay. uh, became Orthodox. But Catholic, Mormon, and then full-blown arm-waving. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. then, yeah. yeah. So I would say that, that the church's tradition that gave you the scriptures, that told you about the apostles, already had a tradition of laying hands and consecrating other people to carry on the apostolic message. They just called them bishops and priests. The apostolic message. Right, but that, well, not just the apostolic message, but the authority to be, to preside over the Eucharist and do baptisms. So it was, it was even more so, um, not just the teaching of the tradition, but also a liturgical passing on. Okay. Because you have to remember, in the early church, it wasn't like we're gonna go teach you like, you know, 
um, you know, here's a, let me hand out this pamphlet on the 12 keys to spiritual success in your financial world kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It was, let's sneak together in these house churches mm -hmm. and celebrate the Eucharist and hope we don't get caught. And they were called cannibals by many people. Mm -hmm. um, that's why the early church was persecuted. Mm -hmm. It's because they were seen as a threat to the outside world. So it wasn't like they were just trying to teach nice people to be nicer. So they were passing on through apostolic succession the authority to administer the sacraments of the church because people understood the sacraments as, uh, a sense, windows into salvation. I see. My view, um, since we're dialoguing back and forth, Brian, is that with size, with tradition, with time comes corruption. I don't. I see that the what Christ and his apostles established there for his small church bride, which I think he took in 70 A.D. at the destruction of Jerusalem, and it opened up the 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 faith to be entirely subjective, where God writes His laws upon our hearts and upon our minds of individuals through the Spirit. Bible comes along later. Sola Scriptura is a lie, but I think that God has been in charge of His body ever since. But my problem is from 70 AD with Jerusalem that Paul says, even when he's writing, things are starting to really get bad. I think it just got worse. I think we had the development of the Trinity. I think that that was a concoction that evolved by men. Then Rome is losing its grip, you know, politically it's getting invaded. And so uh, Constantine says, we got to come together and unite the Christians because they are all over the place. And, and I think there was no orthodoxy. I think it was an open, subjective experience until Constantine says, you guys have too many varying views. We can't unite under that. Uh, I'm seeing a cross in the sky. I want to have victory. So we need to come up with a God we can all believe in. And I think men started putting this all together. And then, you know, I, with all respect with orthodoxy, we have people wearing these robes today, and we have icons on the wall today, and we have red eggs, and we have stuff that men would create to make it, to carry forth tradition, which I think it has become a complete bastardization, my brother. I see the value as being completely lost. Respond. Yeah. Well, obviously, I'm going to disagree with you, right? <laughs> obviously. Um, let me first say by, in terms of the objects, the robes, things like that, you know, most, and so I, you know, I used to wear a collar and robes and all that stuff. And uh, just like the Catholics would, Lutherans, Orthodox. Um, but none of them believe those things are, are intrinsic or you have to have them, right? They symbolize something. Uh, in the same way that the tattoos that you have and I have, or the same way that the clothes that we wear. I mean, so the, but what they're pointing to is something other than the self and it's to God. Um, but I would first want to start off with the sacraments. Before you, know? you go to that, let me just yeah. respond on the close. It seems to me that if Christ's true church tradition was being passed on and kept true, that the preachers and pastors and bishops would be wearing rags. I do not see any, any reflection of God in embroidered hats and gowns where people are looking at. No way. So automatically, right. as an anarchist, I say, there's something wrong with the model. Something has happened. I don't think Jesus would have worn those, and he's the Lord. Why are they wearing it? But go ahead. That's my response yeah. to it. Well, I would say you're absolutely right. The first priests didn't wear what they wore today. Yeah. I would also say that the first priests and bishops didn't have as solid of an understanding of the Trinity as we have today. So the development of the Trinity increased the costliness of the apparel? 
Nothing to do with the apparel. Well, it could have. I don't really know the history, but it could have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I'm just saying that as the church, if God has chosen the church, then there are certainly things within the church that are wrong, but there are certainly things within the church that just because it wasn't in their first church doesn't necessarily there weren't electric lights in the first church either. Right. There weren't Bibles in the first church. There weren't pews. There weren't so these things develop over time. All I'm saying is that it's a it's an ongoing kind of thing with the tradition of the church. I see. But I would say that certain things in traditional Christianity, certain physical, tangible things, are integral to the faith. Okay. So when I used to teach, for example, on baptism, yeah. I would say, you know, I can have a picture of the ocean. My wife and I just went to Maui. I could show a picture of the beautiful oceans in Maui. I also could have dipped a vial of, uh, and gotten some of that salt water in Maui and brought it home. And I said both of these would be symbols of the ocean. The difference, though, between the picture and the vial is that the symbol here, the vial, also contains the ocean. And so baptism is, so when we use the word symbol, unfortunately, in modern culture, it kind of devalues the Christian understanding of symbol. So a symbol does not mean that it doesn't contain the reality. So baptism is a symbol of washing away of sin, but it also is the washing of away of original sin. And that is uh, one of the um, capital T traditions, that baptism, is it the baptismal regeneration? Is that, or is it the washing away of the... Uh... It's baptismal regeneration, new birth. It's like I said last week, uh, in the early church, baptism was considered an exorcism. And if you read traditional liturgies, even the United Methodist liturgy, you know, it asks those who are being baptized, or if it's a child, the, to the parents and sponsors, do you reject the evil forces of this world, all wickedness? You know, so it goes in, so it, it, that's a kind of an echoing of the early church's belief you were being exercised, at least of the stain of original sin. Yeah. Didn't mean you're ever going to sin again. Right. It just meant that. But case in point, the fact that they considered it an exorcism, that's, it's not a biblical tenet. It's something that happened after 70 AD. It's, it's just like they thought baptism should be done in I just don't. running water. They said it should be done <clears throat> in living water then too. There's nothing about that in the scripture. I, I, I just see men throwing in the ring their ideas beginning very, very early. But again, I think the difference between you and me is that I believe this tradition that I'm trying to uphold gave you this Jesus that you used to try to disprove the tradition. Are you talking about just the manuscripts? The New Testament and Old Testament, yes. Well, In other words, the Jesus you're claiming when you say it's not a biblical tenet. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would say it is because the people who gave you the scriptures, who lived this scripture, believe that's a, a belief of the church. In other words, so I'm not sure if I used this last week or not, but you know, let's just say my son played soccer. And then he went up, and I went, I went up to the coach and said, you know, coach, uh, he actually plays baseball. And I would say, you know, coach, uh, we've decided that practices just don't really meet our family situation right now. Mm-hmm. And we don't really think he looks good in that uniform. But we'd really like you to, you know, put him on the team. Mm-hmm. He would say, well, no, you can't be on the team because here's what it means to be on the team. Mm-hmm. And I would say that's the same thing. So you can read the scriptures. But if you don't know what it means to be on the team, the scriptures mean something to you that they don't really mean in real life. Uh, that's a great analogy, but I see Jesus in Mark 9 walking through and his apostles seeing someone who wasn't walking with him casting out devils, and they said, should we call, call down thunder? And he says, leave him alone. He's not against us. He's for us. That's the team. 
It doesn't have anything to do with the, the, the jerseys we wear. It doesn't have anything to do with the practices we, we do. Jesus, the relationship, the God in us is the team. It's, it's, so, it's so extracted from all the outward physical. And that's the other thing, Brian, is that in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says that God says, one more time, I'm going to shake everything down so that the only thing that will remain cannot be shaken. And what you're describing to me and kind of pitching is this idea that these traditions of men through the early church and Constantine on down to 50, 1056 and the splits and all of this stuff is not shakable. And I see nothing but shakable foundations of men getting more and more grotesque as they've passed through the time of age. And I see the pureness of the New Testament where God writes on individuals' hearts and no one even even coming to a church, no one even needing to read a Bible, that they are his and he has had the victory through his son. So I, I, I have to uh, dispute with you on your stance because where, and it's beautiful. And, and, and that's one last thing, because I'm rambling. I am not saying that your approach or your views are um, not acceptable to God. I, I think every, that's my, pro, that's my point. Every one scrambling to know him's view is acceptable to him until they come to know through the spirit who he is and what he expects of them. And, and so I have to stand on that subjective approach versus the objective that you've come, come with. Yeah, again, the, the, I mean, I, I keep, I'm always curious as to how this doesn't really just click with people, right? Again, if the people who gave you the very thing you're using to argue your point believe differently than you believe, yeah. then why would you believe that? Those very people, so you're saying the very people who gave me, you're talking about Erasmus? No, right? I'm, ta I'm talking about the church that said in 393, at the Council of Hippo, the Synod of Hippo, Northern yeah. Africa. And, and we're not even sure if this is even like the time, right? It's right. a very fluid history. Right. But let's just pinpoint it just for the sake of argument's purpose. 393, okay. when the church finally said, this is the Old Testament, this is the New Testament, yeah. we're going to throw them together, this is, we're closing the canon, right? 393 is roughly 350 years after Jesus was crucified and resurrected. Right. So, um, and if you're claiming things like, you know, I forgot the language you used about when the temple was destroyed in 70, the bride was taken yeah, away, all yeah, that yeah. stuff. You wouldn't know about the, the bride, the temple, any of that stuff if it weren't for the church in 393 saying this is the Bible. I'm grateful for the church for but, bringing it but forward. But the point is the people who said this is the Bible didn't believe what you believe. Well, that's, that's okay. Did. That's okay. But they still were doing something, bringing something good forward just because they deliver. It's like, it's like if we had a bunch of gypsies bring forward my parents' inheritance to me. They, they brought forth the inheritance because they were moving it forward. Doesn't mean that I should embrace their gypsyism. Just because some people who meant well were bringing forth the scripture, and I'm sure they meant well, doesn't mean their practices and ideas and the formulation of all this man-made stuff was correct. No, but it, uh, well, I wouldn't say it's man-made, but right. to, to kind of counter that, I would say this, that they never understood this Bible as, okay, here, take your Bible, and now, now you're a Christian. Uh, again, there were no people. People didn't have Bibles. People couldn't read. I am with you on so that. The point I'm trying to make is throughout most of Christian history, yeah. almost always Christians were Christian by virtue of going to worship on Sunday morning. 
I would say Christians were Christian, true Christians, by God being in them. But they went to worship, those ones that... Not God... always. No way. I mean, we can look yeah. at Huss. We can look at the, uh, the Anabaptists. We can look at the way they were treated by the surrounding churches of Orthodoxy. We can look at so much heinous stuff done by the powers that be against those few who said, I'm just following Jesus, baby. They were, to me, the true Christians. The powers... That's what's interesting about you is you don't seem like a corporate lover, a, a power structure guy. I look at North Temple Mormons. I mean, what they had going at the beginning, it seems a little bit more honest. Pioneer, damn it, let's cross the plains. Now they're building billion dollar malls. The, the bigger we get, the more men get involved, the more corrupt things seem to get. And that's just why, that's my, one right, of my biggest arguments. All those arguments. things are not necessary in terms of how I understand. Like, do, do I believe the Vatican should sell all the treasures mm. and give to the poor? Yes. Do I believe that there are lots of things the church does that are, are extremely sinful? Is the gates of hell prevailing against the no. church because of those things? I would say I would gates say of hell yes. is not. Right, that'd okay. be a difference, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, because the reason I would say it's not is because the church has grown to, I mean, the Catholics have 1.2 billion, the Orthodox have 300 million, the Protestants have however many, so it's probably a couple billion Christians in the world. I think the truth is going to always be the truth. So do you think uh, that, oh, are you saying that the numbers then justify the, the, the truthfulness of it? No, I'm saying the truthfulness of it justifies the truthfulness of it. Okay. But I do believe that truth does bring people in. It's like, you know, um, the, the, the church that David, whatever his last name. Bartosowitz. Yeah, Bartosowitz goes to. Uh, the last time I was there, because I, I know the priest there, and uh, <clears throat> what we walk into this church, and not a pew in the place, um, you have to stand for two or three hours, except for during the sermon, you can sit down. <clears throat> and we're in there, and the place is so packed with young people, like in their 20s and 30s, little kids running around. What, what was interesting to me is I believe that those young people were in that church uh, because they didn't want to go to a place where, they got, where there's somebody who's like, you know, you can believe whatever you want to believe. Or mm. they don't want to go to the entertainment church. Mm. They don't want to go to the consumer church. They wanted something that they believe was truthful. Sure. They want because certainty. Even within that, I would, well, I wouldn't even say it's certainty. I would say it's more certainty in fundamentalism mm. than orthodoxy. Mm. I would say, I mean, orthodox, the way they describe themselves is, you know, you can believe we're an organization with mystery, but in orthodoxy, we're a mystery that has some organization. Mm. So there's lots more freedom than one would think with orthodoxy. Mm. Um, but I, I was just struck by the number of young people that were there mm. to the point where it was driving me crazy. The kid, and the priest even had to say, please calm your kids down, right? Mm. I mean, a lot of Protestant churches are just begging for people to come. Mm -hmm. And I think younger people, my son's a great example of this, mm -hmm. is not a, they aren't as much interested in what feels good, mm -hmm. but instead what they believe is the most truthful expression. Mm -hmm. So for me, um, I love orthodoxy on paper. Mm. I don't like it in terms of practice. Mm. I, I prefer to be a Methodist or be a Roman Catholic or a Lutheran because I'm familiar with those with, with that world. Mm. As a counter to what you just said, uh, I think that it's human nature for people who are seeking something in their life to lean toward uh, more legalistic expressions. And that's why the cults are so powerful and strong. They give them that you must do this, this is how it is, we're telling you. And so when people need that, 
the unmooredness of subjective Christianity is scary as hell. Mm -hmm. And people don't want that responsibility upon themselves to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. See, I wouldn't say it's scary. I'd just say, no offense. It just seems kind of boring. <laughs> like, uh, why would I care about this whole, this is, this is how I feel about my salvation? Because I would know it would be just, I mean, wh why would I ever think that I would know what even salvation is? Why would I think that... I would ever have a right. It's like, I love these churches that, you know, there are two of them by my house and both of them will have the, they have these flashing signs and they say, wherever you are on your spiritual journey. That's a lie by the way, but keep going. I hate that language yeah. because yeah. how would they even know? I mean, why would you think that somebody's spiritual journey is necessarily just because they're, it's their journey that it's a good thing? Well, you wouldn't think it was a good thing, but if someone was seeking and you know, they're seeking to find God. I think that God understands that honest heart and does step in and help move them to a place and change their life and fill them with love. And they, they see God in them. And, the, and, and so but again, Westboro Baptist is saying the same thing you're saying. They yeah. are, they say the same thing. So do the fundamentalists that you went to and you didn't like them. And we, so do the Roman Catholics and the Orthodox. They're, they're, all, they're all saying that, right? It's all about the love, brother. That's why. That's where, the, that's where it becomes it completely in your lap what you do with your religion, what you do with your faith. Are you going to follow? Are you going to love? Are you going to trust God? I mean, I like that more. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like what you're saying. Mm -hmm. I think it's honest. I, in fact, I, I resonate with that more mm -hmm. than what I'm defending. Mm-hmm because it's just a lot easier for me, you know? Yeah. But um, I just think when you take a, when you say it's all about the love, man, I mean, my question is, what love are you talking about? New so, Testament uh, love, I mean, defined by 1 Corinthians 13. Yeah, well, you know, my favorite theologians are oftentimes fond of saying, you know, love is not the same in any, in any tradition. Um, so he would say, Christian love names the kind of love that says two people have to love each other, even if they're married. He's joking there. Yeah, yeah, but right. what he's saying is that love is not an emotion. That's true. Love is a decision that you make. Christian right? love is definitely a definitely decision. Definitely a decision. Yes. And I think that most Christians function off emotion. Totally against that. No. Yeah, but how can you make a decision, Sean, if you don't have anything to make a decision about, if it's all subjective? But it, no, what you're doing is the subjectivism isn't saying that there isn't an objective truth. God has, God is the, I'm not a relativist. I'm not saying that everything is a willy nilly. He has a truth, but we see through a glass darkly. You preach the word, you let them hear, you teach them what Christ said about love in first, what Paul said about love in first Corinthians. You tell them that love is not a feeling. You tell them that love is a decision when things are tough and you teach them the principles and they leave and they go out and they decide, do I want to participate in this? Or do I want to take the easy path of, hey, Christianity or ritual Christianity, which does the thinking for me? This puts it in the individual's lap. And God said the New Testament is when he writes on the heart. That's what his New Testament, Tertullian's the one who called the collection of books the New Testament. The New Testament is when he writes on the heart, but baby. he didn't canonize them, that's the difference. Oh, that's true. And, and I, yeah. I am with you on the Bible. I am yeah. so, and I love the Bible, but I am with you. That was not a manual to be followed. Correct. The right. thing I would say to you is if, if, if I turned my back and you said those exact same words, and I didn't know you were in the room, uh, you could be a fundamentalist preacher mm -hmm. or an uber liberal preacher, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. In other words, you say, you know, you preach the word here. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I've never been here, right? Mm -hmm. I believe that you're an extremely sincere guy. Mm -hmm. I really do. Um, 
But what do you do with that fundamentalist pastor goes in there and says, man, McCraney's not preaching the word anymore. Right. They do, too. I know they do. Yeah. Why are they wrong? Yeah. I'm not saying they are. Right. Maybe they're right. That's the thing. I accept them in love. They can say that. They can believe that. And how could you ever say you're preaching the word? How would you ever know that you're I don't. preaching the I word? I say I do my best, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you what I think it says, and I'll do my homework, and we'll try. But, man, if someone says, I don't agree with that, I'll say, have at it, brother. You know, I, who am I? And I think we have made the mistake of thinking we can say, this is who I am, and this is why it's right. And that's my rub against orthodoxy. I, don't, I think men have fallen apart from the get-go. Yeah, I just think this. I, I don't want, you know, if I'm having a heart issue, I want people, I want doctors that are trained in the tradition of healing hearts. I don't want people come and say, well, I feel like I'm a heart doctor and let's just all get together and you know, see how we feel about this. Right. You know? In other words, there is a tradition of reading. There's a tradition for everything Christian. Mm-hmm. And when you ignore those traditions, I believe you're ignoring Christianity in the same way that you're ignoring uh, good healthcare if you ignore the traditions of heart doctors. It's a great analogy. And I, I understand the analogy and I see how you think it works, but when Jesus said, I'm going to come back. The apostles said he's coming back. The Greek tells us he's coming back shortly, soon, almost here. He's here. And then we have all the signs that he gives us in Matthew 23 of saying, everything Jesus said happening according to Josephus and and all these guys, and he takes his bride. The rapture was then, and then we enter into the new age of the kingdom, where now it is not about churches, traditions, teachings, Everything has been playing church from that point forward. What it is about God calling to people. They don't need to go to church in the Aborigine. They don't need a Bible. They don't need a preacher. The spirit, they can acquiesce. And it's all been that. We've ignored it. And so we differ. Well, we do differ. But like example, a question I would ask you then is when you use the word rapture. Yeah. All right. That's not really a traditional, like um, that's not a word a Methodist would ever use. Right. Or a Lutheran or right. a Catholic or none of them. Or Not in the Bible. Yeah. yeah. Where'd you get the word rapture from? Got it from the Latin. Right. But I get all that. Right. Right. I'm not saying that we can't learn things from what's happened in the past. I'm not saying that it was all demonic. I'm just saying that the direction we have taken it has been a direction of corruption. I, I just don't see it as any of the signs I see if I walked into one of those churches would not be one of, wow, they really have it going. All I see is the influence of men. But how would you know what going is? That's my question. Like, if, if a church has it going, how would Sean McCraney define what that church is? Well, when I read that we... Because I think we do it differently. We should be humble. When I read that, that we shouldn't be basing ourselves off the things of the world and all that is in uh, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. When I see that stuff infiltrating into churches, when I hear that Calvary Chapel across the street, by the way, who I just promoted for not teaching tithing anymore, uh, has put in an ATM machine, so to speak, called the giving kiosk, where you go in with your card and swipe it and it will take your money. Uh, That kind of, when I see vestiges of that anywhere, I say, there's just no way you can read the word. I get your point that the, the, it was the believers, mostly in the churches, who gave us the word. And so they have value in what they say. But we know that even the patristic fathers had, had heresies. I'm just saying they would have never extracted from the scriptures 
the kinds of things that they would have called heresy that you believe. Um, to, them be, to them it will be heresy to believe that one could be a Christian and not go to the Eucharist on a weekly basis. Veneration of saints? Iconography? What, incense? I'm talking about the major doctrines. The capital but Yeah, T. I would say the, paper, the people who gave us the scriptures believed in praying through the saints. I mean, you can see I think they icons. did believe that, but yeah. I don't think the apostles and, and Jesus believed that. Doesn't matter. It, it, they didn't disbelieve it. Nothing, they did, I mean, Jesus didn't believe in electric lights because there weren't any, right? I mean, these things develop within a tradition. It, my point exactly. Yeah. My point and, exactly. But, the, but the tradition is a holy tradition, as the Orthodox Ooh, and the Catholics would yeah, say. Yeah, I know. And that's a different, it's not tradition for the sake of tradition. It's a divine tradition because the Holy Spirit at Pentecost set up housekeeping in the church. And I don't mean like just, you know, the feeling in the hearts of individuals. No. I'm talking about in the apostolic succession, the passing on, the handing down, and that would be the difference between you and yeah. me. That's the difference. Yep. How are we on time? Oh, we're past. Gosh. We have to have you back. But I will say this, my friend. Yes. I've loved being here. I, I, I love having genuine, honest conversations. Me too. And I don't like the whole... Part of the stuff that I hate about the church is the kind of the puffiness and, you know, the protectionism of my denomination, my faith, my beliefs. I like the way that you put it out there and just say, this is who I am. I, I, I honor that and appreciate it. Yeah. Same with you, truly. Yeah. And, I mm -hmm. mean, look at you're up here defending uh, something that we really, in terms of what I'm trying to help do here, uh, really stand against. Mm -hmm. But I do not stand it against it in your life. And I mm -hmm. see a man who's my brother and uh, your uh, views may be superior to mine. I have to admit that. I just, this is the, how I see it. You see it a different way, but we can leave friends. And you know, I have not experienced that in Christianity very much at all. Mm -hmm. All I have experienced is po finger pointed that you're a heretic, you're going to hell, you're not born again, you're not a Christian, just for simply questioning. And, and I don't get that from you and uh, love it. No, in fact, I'd say the, the one, the, the the two biggest virtues that I that I appreciate most in the in the Christian church are are being peaceable, nonviolent, and mm -hmm. humility. Because mm -hmm. it's only I think in speaking in humility that you're able to speak the truth and have it be heard. I love that, or at least the possibility of it being heard. So, Brian, D Reverend D Brian Diggs, thank you so much, my thank brother. You, brother. Come, we'll have you back anytime next year. Anytime. Yeah. I'm trying to get together a group, and if you can help me, because no one will listen to me, but. If, you can help me get some other views that will sit on a panel and we can do this. That would really be fun. We'll talk about I've it. I've been out of the game for a while, but I'll do my best. Awesome. Yeah. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter.